Hey everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lease with our 16th edition of the Surf and Sales Podcast for 2021. Uh, as we roll into Monday, Super Bowl Sunday, Super Bowl Monday, which Scott Lease has always said should be a national holiday. Um, should be. Stand by it. So, uh, but I'm curious if Scott actually took the day off on his calendar, but that's not what we're here for today. Um, and you know the answer is no. Exactly my point. So yeah. um, quick shout out before we introduce our, our guest. Uh, we want to thank our sponsors of Gong, Lead411, uh, Salesforce Revenue Cloud, and Vidyard for supporting us. So as they support us, please continue to support them as you build out your sales stack and grow your revenue um, throughout the year. Without any further ado, we are going to uh, introduce Jacob McCandless, who is the VP of Seven Peaks Distribution. I don't even know what he's a VP of. I don't know if it's sales, pencils and erasers, or just pins and caps. Like you, you tell <laughs> us, Jacob, but thanks for joining us, man. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I am the VP of sales actually for Seven Peaks. Um, and we are a hemp farming collective in Oregon. You are a, what? a hemp farming collective in Oregon. So yes. Um, and, and the other part of this too, is that Jacob was the one who emailed and said, Hey, what, what are we, what are we talking about? Like, what, what questions should I be prepared for? And we're like, ah, Jacob, we don't roll that way. So uh, <laughs> Jacob's one of those who likes to be prepared, um, which isn't necessarily what I might think of someone who's in the hemp industry, but maybe I've got it all. Wrong. I'm here to break some stereotypes today, guys. Are you? Sweet. Love that. I love that. <laughs> well, so, let, anyway. let, let's start, let's start with, uh, you know, what seven peaks distribution is, what, what it's, what it's all about and give people some context for your sales and, uh, and leadership background. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so seven peaks, just to start with the current, current role, uh, we're a hemp farming collective. So it's multiple farms that are individually managed and operated by the farmers, but operating together under one uh, kind of distribution collective. So we, we collaborate on inventory and uh, distribution streams, clientele, things like that. So we can have one more available inventory to us so that instead of having if you're one farmer and you have a hundred thousand pounds of material um you kind of that's all you have but when you're part of a collective that has five million pounds of material you can land some bigger contracts for distribution mm -hmm. and things like that so that's kind of one advantage to doing it that way um the other main advantage as to why we sh we're structured this way is because farmers have their hands full already farming that's a full-time job right so one big issue in the hemp industry specifically with sales and farming is that the farmers are really occupied just managing their crop, you know, planning for the season, harvesting, you know, drying material, storing it, all of the things that comes together with that. It takes a full-time dedicated sales effort to make sure that there's a clientele base for that product. If you work all year to get your product ready and harvest it and get your crop out of the field, et cetera, and then you sit back and go, okay, now it's time to sell this stuff. You're already months behind on the sales cycle yeah. because, you know, the sales guys, they start planning, the guys who are buying product from the farms to take it to a lab to convert it into CBD oil or something like that. They're already planning those purchases in the summer before the harvest even starts. So, so I would, I would, imagine, I would imagine those farmers, this is not exactly their sweet spot and skill set either. 
Right. They're really knowledgeable at what they do in the agriculture, but doing the whole, you know, sales and business and, and planning of building networks with clientele, finding new clientele, you know, hitting up cold leads, things like that. They don't have time to do that every day. And it takes, it really does take 40, 60 hours a week of just doing that to make sure you have enough so, distribution. So what is the buying season, right? Like, so I know, like I worked in traditional retail a long time ago, right? You know, the clothes in Christmas were decided upon in, you know, February and March, right? To go to manufacturing, Right. So that they showed up right. for Christmas season at the Gap where I worked. Um, Scott, I don't know if you ever knew I worked at the Gap, but um, yes, I've heard the story a few times, Richard. Yes. Um, <laughs> we're just we're just like a married couple, Jacob. So yeah. what was the season like? Like help you because I, I have no clue. Like it's a fascinating industry. We know about it, but we don't know about it, you know? Yeah, exactly. And that and consumer education and even uh intermarket education is really important right now because the hemp industry is growing and it's got all these great projections of, oh, you know, $40 billion industry by 2025 and things like that. But it's still growing to get there because you have to educate consumers and get products in front of them. Um, but to answer your question, the season for outdoor farming, which is what a lot of our farms do here in Oregon, you know, a hundred acres, or a couple hundred acres, something like that, even if it's just small, like 40, 50 acres. And you're doing it from roughly the 1st of June is when you want to have everything kind of going in the ground. And then harvest is in mid-October. If you're growing indoors like a greenhouse or something, you can actually get, you know, maybe two or three harvests a year, probably if you're depending on your cycle. But when you're doing a, one big outdoor crop, you're kind of growing everything you need for the year in one one bang. So how long does it, so again, you know, this is the, you know, Scott probably knows the answers to these questions. Let's, let's see if Scott knows this answer. So Scott. Quiz me. Quiz me. It's like a trivia game. You know, I bet $5 Scott doesn't know the answer to this question. <laughs> Actually, I bet $5 he does know the answer. So if I if I grow in June and harvest in the fall, which is what, September, you said? October. October. October, right? How long is that good for? How long is that, whether it's in its natural form, right, from a, from a, a smoking perspective, or and going into sort of an, you know, a, an oil extraction type approach, right? How long is the crop actually good before it turns to dust? Scott, do you yeah. know the answer to this? Well, I, Scott, let's I mean, see. I know, I, know the, I know the answer to the former. I do not know the answer to the latter. <laughs> I, it would be a complete guess. I have no idea. So answer. Well, what? No, I mean, Scott, I want Scott to answer. Oh yeah, Scott, let's, see your, let's hear your I'm guess not, and then I'll tell you what it comes down to. Listen, I'm not, I'm not touching anything that's more than uh, a few months old, period. Sure. Okay. But I don't, I don't know as far as like all the other products. Right. How long could it last? Right. Right. I don't um, know. That at all. That'd be a guess. And, that, and that's what's interesting is that there is multiple factors that come into play when you're looking at, at that type of shelf stability. Um, if you are, there's really two things you do with a field full of hemp plants. You're either going to harvest it for the flower, for the buds, and actually go through, sorry, decline that call. You're actually gonna go through and trim the flower off and, and harvest the bud, just like you were if it was a cannabis farm. But it, you would, you know, you would take the buds off specifically and not really worry about the rest of the plant and dry and cure and harvest those for the bud. Or um, you would take the entire field to what's called biomass, which is where you're basically taking all your hemp plants, flower, bud, everything, and you're shoving them through kind of like a big, uh, like wood chipper almost, and it grinds it all up into these 
big five to 700 pound sacks of what we call biomass. And that pulp, that mixture is what you take to a big lab or processing facility to have it turned into oil or CBD isolate or whatever. Um, and it's kind of, so that's kind of what, where, what farmers have to decide is, do I want to harvest for biomass or do I want to harvest for flour? Now, are, are, I don't know phrase this. Um, is everybody just optimizing for the, 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 the product with the largest ROI or are people really going niche and, and being like, no, I'm, I'm the expert in this. Like I've got this down. I'll just stay right here in my lane or are people really, you know, just like expansion, expansion, grow at all costs. Like in the software business, right. It's like grow or die. Right. Like you got to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I wonder if some of the folks who have been in this industry for a long time that have now made the transition to doing it legally um, have that kind of grow at all costs mentality and mindset. Or if they're like, no, this is my niche. I make, you know, a good living doing this right here. I like my work life, you know, balance and whatnot. Right. Um, so to talk about that a little bit for me. Yeah, so I think uh, the niche the niche guys are probably more of like your greenhouse and indoor growers who are really trying to target specific genetics of a plant um, and grow it for that high, high, high quality flower for the bud itself. Um, the guys who are usually doing large outdoor grows are primarily looking to take all of that material and, and, and mill it to biomass and have that converted into oil or isolate or something like that, because you're doing it for volume at that point, right? You're growing a couple hundred acres. You're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of material. You know, I've got farms that can do a million pounds of material in one season, right? And it's a tremendous amount of plants. That's a huge field. So that's, and that's really, you're not really trying to target a niche, you know, boutique item when you're doing at that scale, you're just trying to, you're trying to get those big production contracts where you're filling an oil requirement for somebody, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're shipping that material off to someone else who's going to be making tons of direct to consumer products. So I want to come back to sort of the, the life cycle, right? So we talked about, you know, if you're doing it through, through a grow house or if you're doing it outdoors and mm -hmm. there's this there's the calendar, right? Which is June to October. Yeah. So what's happening the rest of the year in the industry, right? Like, so do, does someone come and quote unquote, buy the harvest in April or May ahead of harvest? Do, does it like, how does all that work? So ideally, yeah, right. If you are in a really blessed position, because honestly, a lot of farmers are not in this position currently because the industry is still so new. Um, but if you're in a really blessed position, then before your seeds even go into the ground in June, you know exactly where all of your material is going because you've already got a contracted outlet for it. But surprisingly enough, I would probably bet that more than like the majority share of farms are probably growing with uh, kind of like a winging it sales attitude. They're like, we're going to grow this material and then we're going to find a home for it, you know, and maybe you find a home for it before it's harvested. Maybe you find a, a contract, you know, during the summer or something like that. But um, more often than not, you are harvesting and you're storing all this biomass or flour, whatever it is inside of some sort of barn or warehouse for, for curing and preservation to keep it out of the elements. And then you're kind of trying to find a home for it, whether it's all in one sale or maybe you're piecing it out 25,000 pounds here and there, if you grew a lot. 
Um, and, and so it kind of depends on what your, your outlet was a couple of years. So there was a boom, right there a couple of years ago, like 2017, 2018 hemp farmers, there wasn't a ton of them yet in America and they were making a killing. The ones that were in it were making a killing. So to give you an example, um, biomass, right? So ground up hemp plants that are used for CBD extraction, biomass a few years ago was like, you know, 50 bucks a pound. Okay. Nowadays you're looking at a dollar to $2 a pound because that's how much more material has been pushed into the market by tons of more farmers switching over to hemp. Um, but the outlet for it hasn't necessarily increased at the same proportion. So you've got millions and millions and millions of more pounds of available material, but not millions of more buyers. So the price over the last two years drove all the way down on biomass and flour from, you know, where you're making millions of dollars on a crop to you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars on a crop if you sell it all. And some farmers no, never sold it all either. What, what is the, what is the sales cycle like on these, on these big, uh, these big contracts? Like, like mean, how does it go through? Yeah. Like, like, you know, I start, I start talking to you. I prospect you today, for example, like what is the average deal cycle? Is it, are you buying in June? Are you, are you buying no, so like, from now? We've like, got, right. We've got tons of material that's stored and preserved in inside indoor facilities, right? That after harvest, that's where the, the material all got stored. Is that the, the farm's barn or warehouse or something like that? So people are shopping all year because sometimes, um, you know, labs are buying from one farm, but then that farm runs out of material and they have to go shop somewhere else. Or maybe that farm, that material wasn't uh, extracting at the right efficiency that they needed to. So they have to shop around. So we're always taking in new, but, that, not that, like that, have, but that, that sounds a bit more like inbound to me. And I could be, I could be wrong, but from an outbound perspective, like let's say you're going to, you're trying to, you know, go land a new, uh, a new contract, new oil distribution or, or, or something like how long does it actually take from first touch to signed contract? And, you know, what is like the complexity of the deal? Like how many different decision makers are, are involved? I'm trying to get a sense of right. like, is this a more how, yeah. simple or complex sale? Is it more transactional or, you know, relationship enterprisey kind of based? It's very relationship based. Definitely. Um, the guys, so, and we'll kind of touch on this conversation a little bit more afterwards, but the reason that I've even been having some success building this network with this guys, these, these farmers is because the, a lot of the sales comes down to personal relationships, right? So to answer your first question about timeline, if someone came to me today and was like, you know, this is what I need, or if I contacted someone today and told them about our inventory and we started talking first things, usually they want to see a, a COA, a certificate, <clears throat> excuse me. A certificate of analysis, which is basically the testing of the material from a state certified laboratory that shows, uh, you know, if it makes sure there's no pesticides in it, heavy metals, it shows all the percentages of CBD and THC and CBN and CBG and all the other cannabinoids, it breaks it all down. So you can see how potent the material is, um, so, you know, usually has the information about what farm it comes from, all that stuff. So you have to show them a COA, you show them, you know, that your material is clean and that it's potent and it's been tested and all that good stuff. And then usually they want to see a sample of it. So if, you know, if you get a sample out right away, you know, maybe you exchange the COA through email that same day, you get a sample out the next day, they test it on their own through another state certified lab. Um, and that probably adds a week, you know, to the time frame for shipping the material there and getting it tested, et cetera. 
Um, and if it's a big deal, right? So let's say usually labs are buying hundreds of thousands of pounds of material at a time. So let's say it's at least a hundred thousand pounds. You know, that's four semi trucks full of hemp from top to bottom, front to back. It's a lot of material. So they typically, Damn, I was going to ask out. Scott, how many trucks do you think it takes to carry a hundred thousand? <laughs> yeah. It's on a, on a big dry van, a 53 foot dry van is usually about 25,000 pounds, 20 oh to 25,000 pounds. It depends on how much you can cram it in there, but if it's really well palletized, you can get 25,000 pounds on there. And so, you know, from start to finish, usually I'd say it's probably at least, at least a three to four week sales cycle from first contact to getting it wrapped up. As long as it's someone who is like, immediately in need of the product. Sometimes they're hitting you up in January and they're saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to need a product in the summer. Let's just start making sure it's lined up. But if it's an immediate need, it's probably still at least a three, four week sales cycle to get testing done and build that back and forth on the contract of, cause sometimes they say, Oh, well, I'm going to give you a deposit up front, but I want your trucks to arrive at my facility so I can look in every bag, make sure there's not mold in it. You didn't send me something I didn't test, et cetera. So sometimes you put terms on the deal and you go back and forth a little bit. So how do you, so I, I mean, there's so many questions. Like I can't even take notes on this one because it's just fascinating. Um, so how, what do you, so, so you're buying a hundred thousand pounds, like, and, and again, I'm uneducated, right? I thought you couldn't take that kind of money and put it in the bank. Like I thought there were still federal issues around, like, how do you, how do you, how do you well, see the financial side of this? So things? industrial hemp is a federally legalized agriculture product. Okay. So Payment processing is something that is difficult in the CBD industry. There is some, if you're like, uh, if you own like a CBD oil brand and you have a website where you can sell your oil online, sometimes it's tricky to get your payment processing set up at first because not a lot of people want to run, you know, cannabis product sales, even if it is just hemp and CBD, they kind of lump it all together sometimes. Right. Um, but when it comes to like the hemp plant and shipping biomass, that's as legal as shipping a truck full of corn across the country, honestly, as long as your paperwork is all there and your, your stuff is certified by a, a state lab and it's been tested and it's not, you know, over the, there's basically, there's a, there's an approved limit by the feds that distinguishes cannabis from hemp and it's 0.3% THC, Delta nine THC, which is the specific cannabinoid that intoxicates you in cannabis. So as long as your plant has less than 0.3% Delta nine THC, and according to the federal farm bill, by the Department of Agriculture, it's hemp. It's legal. You can ship it. You can do whatever you need with it. There are some states that have specific regulations that kind of make it a little trickier, but for the vast, vast majority of the states, uh, hemp is is a totally legal commodity. So just so I, I mean, again, I'm just bouncing all over the place, but I know, I know it is it's a deep industry. It's no no, no it's but it, but it's fascinating. Like these are the, I think these yeah. we don't get a chance to ask these questions. Scott, we should have legitimately this would have been a great bonfire session for lots of reasons. <laughs> we can we can burn a lot of things at that yeah. At that so um yeah, absolutely what so talk about the people in the industry, right? Like there I I certainly have this stereotype that I think there are probably some very smart people in the industry who are business-minded like you. And I've talked to a couple of people and then you sort of have this, you know, the burnout hippie who's sort of in the industry, right. Whether they're the farmer or the whatever, like what's, you know, what's the wrong stereotype? Like what, what, who, who are these people? So I would definitely say that kind of stereotype of the hippie, you know, the pot smoking hippie from the sixties, that is totally the opposite of what the hemp and CBD industry is nowadays. It's become extremely competitive, very business-minded, a lot of very intelligent people 
who were working for Fortune 500 companies, you know, switched professions and went into the hemp and CBD industry over the last two years because they saw the opportunity to grow and make money in that. It's extremely competitive. Um, these farmers, you know, these are guys that are, are typically running, you know, hundreds of acres of, 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 you know, wheat and alfalfa and corn and other things like they're really knowledgeable agriculture professionals. And it takes a, a specific level of expertise to grow a, a large amount of hemp that can actually be used. Because keep in mind, if you get your heavy metals off a little bit, if you get pesticides, fungicides, mold, if you don't harvest it correctly, you can screw your entire harvest in one mistake. And then all of that is down the drain. So these guys really are extremely intelligent. I mean, the guys that are running these labs that are making CBD oil and CBD isolate and all the ingredients you need to make all these products that people love. These are guys with, you know, master's degrees and PhDs in chemistry and biochemistry. And they're very intelligent individuals. And it is a very interesting industry to work in. Go ahead. Let's say you're going to hire, you know, salespeople to join your, join your team. Mm -hmm. What, what is the, what is the background or, or expertise or, um, level of like sales acumen you're looking for like can somebody come in who's green off the street never you know sold before in, of any kind um and and you know learn this and get real good at it could you take somebody like richard who's been in tech sales for 20 something years and you know teach him how to how to sell in in this kind of environment like what would you be looking for in short, a hundred percent. Yes. Um, on both, the key, on both. Yes. On the key qualities to start, if, if you were taking someone right off the street, first, you just need to educate yourself a lot about the hemp industry, right? So yeah, if you're, a lot of, a lot if of you're industry knowledge and expertise, yeah, exactly. Terminology, you know, how the conversion process works. It, I mean, it helps in your sales to understand how a hemp plant goes from growing in the ground to being harvested to being extracted, to being converted into products. There's a lot of people that are coming involved at that. You know, usually there's a farmer that farms it and then an extractor that extracts it into oil or something. And then there's a processor that makes the tinctures or the gummies or the lotions or whatever the product is. There's distributors involved. There's a lot of people to get it from farm to customer. Um, so kind of, you have to kind of pick where you want to fit into that, but there's a lot of education that comes involved. But really the, the biggest, most important skill is just tenacity. This is a very competitive industry. And if you, if you focus on your, your losses, you know, if you really beat yourself up every time you get hung up on, on a sales call or someone doesn't email you back, or they're just like, no, I'm not interested in your product. You'll never make it because that's every day. That's all day, every day. And you just have to keep rolling with it, you know, because the industry is big and there's a lot of opportunity. If you, if you, when I first started doing this, to give you an anecdote, when I first started in CBD sales, um, I literally would go to a state, I would look up a state's agriculture website, and I would find their published listing of all of the registered hemp farms and hemp labs that are approved by the Department of Ag in that state. And I would just make a spreadsheet out of them. And I would call down the list one by one to every single person. Hey, you know, this is me. This is my product. Do you guys, what do you guys make? You know, and just start a conversation. What do you guys do? How are you making it? Are you looking for anything? Can I, is there something that you make cheaper that we're buying that maybe I could buy it from you? And then in return, you could buy our, you know, you're just having conversations all day and you just, you have to be tenacious. You're going to get, 
you're going to get no's 99% of the time. But the ones that you do get yeses on are typically guys that you're going to end up working with for months. And you can do hundreds of thousands of dollars of sales with those people because you build a really close relationship with them. Sounds pretty similar, Richard. It does. I, I, I think Scott was just seeing if he could get a job from you. As he said, you know, before we got on, he was getting a little bored lately. So now he needs a new challenge. Hey, so. if you're tenacious, hemp and CBD is definitely uh, an industry that will require that. I'm pretty sure I'm tenacious and I'm pretty sure I know a good amount about the industry to start with. So that would get yeah. me off to a good start. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So Jacob, we're going to totally shift this. We're going to pull ourselves completely out of this because this is actually, you know, one of the main reasons we wanted to have you on is that, and I don't think most people know this about you, is that, you know, legitimately, and thank you for your service, you actually were an interrogator in the, yes, in the armed I, services, I was. right? Um, yes. And which, which branch were you in, just as uh, to let people know? I was uh, in the U.S. Army for six years, and I did two tours to Afghanistan during that time. Thank you. So... One of the, and, and so I can't even imagine like doing one tour, much less two. Um, but I want to talk to you about interrogation and interrogation techniques. And, and we're not going yeah. to get into the enhanced interrogation. I mean, I don't know, maybe we will, but you, you can tell us what's classified and what's not. But, Absolutely. you know, I asked, I mean, what was that like? Like, I mean, the simple question is, okay, what's it like to be that person? Like, how right. are you working with this person? How are you trying to talk to them? You know, is it like a movie, you know, where you see all this craziness going on or is it like, no, it's actually not that at all, guys. Right. A lot of people, you tell them you're an interrogator and this was always, this was like nine times out of 10 when I was in the army. If I told someone outside of the military, I was an interrogator. First thing they would ask me, oh, so you're the guy that waterboards people. Right. Every single time. And I'm like, no, man, that's like literally when I was in interrogation school, if we even were joking about waterboarding people or, oh, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. They would kick you out of interrogation school right on the spot. If you don't have the maturity to have that type of responsibility in your hands, they move you somewhere else and they drop you. Um, it was an amazing experience to start. I really loved my job. Um, going to Afghanistan and doing that job in a combat environment is very physically draining and it, it does take a toll on you you know, just the roughness of it, because Afghanistan is a very rugged country. So while I loved it, and I enjoyed doing it, um, for the sake of my overall longevity and health, I, I kind of decided to switch career paths. But it was a really amazing experience. And the, the reality of interrogations, especially military style interrogation, is that you're not you're really not accusing them of something. You're not really trying to get them to admit to a crime like a cop or some federal law enforcement might be trying to do, right? When you, cause you already have them, right? If they're, if they're in your detention center already, it's because you detained them on the spot for doing something illegal. Like you raided a house to get a bad guy and he was that bad guy, or you found him planting an IED on the side of the road or you you're, know, something you're like digging, that. But you're digging for more and more information. Right, right. right. you're building a relationship with that person at yeah. that point. So this, you're, so how would you, how does this like skill set that you've honed play into, you know, like discovery part of the sales process and asking of questions to get more information out of a prospect than, than maybe they're willing to give or a candidate that you're, that you're interviewing? Like, do you apply these things and draw, draw parallels? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say really it starts with overcoming objections and building rapport. Those are, are two hugely important skills for uh, 
interrogation or you know tactical questioning of any kind. Um, <clears throat> so in the sales process, when you're introducing yourself to a new uh, lead or prospect, you first have to convince them that you're not just there to try to sell them something and make a buck off of them, right? You have to build a legitimate uh, kind of mutual relationship with that person, especially in the hemp industry, because there's so many options. If they think you're kind of a, you know, a slacker or you don't aren't completely invested in their interests or whatever, um, you know, they can shop somewhere else. So it's very easy to lose a client if you don't build that initial rapport from that first phone call. Um, and then, right, as you're finding out about their needs, uh, things that you can do to help them and things they can do to help you, there might come some objections like, oh, well, you know, your product looks good, but I'm already getting it for five cents cheaper over here, right? Whatever the, whatever the objection may be, you have to be prepared to handle that, handle that confrontation. And I think for the amount of sales years that I have compared to some other people, I am very, very good at handling those situations because my years before being a, yeah. a sales guy, I was an interrogator and I was right. doing that every day. How do you, like, you're immediately in a confrontational role as opposed to like, you know, if it's a business meeting, at least there's some level of interest of like right. trying to figure this out. Whereas I would see in a combat role, it's, they have no interest, right? So how do you- Well, here's the thing. You find their interests, right? You, they've yeah, been talk about, talk about that. He's, he's, they've he's been taken from the their point. home, taken from their kids. They're, they're locked in a room. They don't know what's going on. Maybe they're cigarette smokers. They haven't had a cigarette in 24 hours. You know, maybe they just want a cup of tea because they're really shaken up. And when I walk, when you walk in that room, you're, you already, you have a game plan because you're going to look at that detainee's file ahead of time. You look at what happened, where they were captured, what was the circumstances of capture, all those things. And you make a game plan of how am I going to try to psychologically work on this guy to get him to open up to me? Um, sometimes it's as simple as, hey, man, let's talk about what happened and I'm going to give you some cigarettes. I'll pour you some green tea and we'll, we'll just have a conversation. You know, maybe it's, Hey, you work, you work with me for 30, 40 minutes, help me, you know, put some of these pieces together and answer my questions and I'll get you a phone call to your kid. There's all different ways that you can use leverage without having to pay them or release them from jail. Right. They, you have all of the, all of the power in that situation. So it's not like you're, you don't have to force them to do anything. I'm going to say, look, you don't have to do this. This is fine. This is your choice. But if you want X, Y, and Z, you want me to make time here a little bit easier. You want me to help you get moved from this facility to another facility, whatever the leverage may be. That's kind of what you hone in on to get the cooperation that you need. How, how long, I'm just curious. And again, we're just going to go deep into this rabbit hole. How long mm -hmm. in that situation would people hold out or were they really not interested in holding out? They were sort of like, they were, they, look, they were fighting a battle in which they believed. Um, and, but in the end, they really just want to get back home to be with their family. Like, you know, or, or people like, no, they were like all gung ho. Like, again, we, you know, we only get snippets of this stuff, right? We, right. We get what the news tells us. Um, I think the, the stubbornness is usually directly correlated to how much they know. If they're a really, you know, in their guy with a lot of knowledge, um, they sometimes will never break. I mean, there's guys uh, down in Guantanamo Bay that have been there for years and that's their, they don't care, you know, they're in it for the long haul. 
And then there's some guys that you don't even have to say anything to them. You walk in the room, you know, that they're still, you're still in Afghanistan. They haven't gone anywhere. They're at the initial detention center. You walk in the room and they're just like, look, man, I don't want to go down for this. Like, this is not my thing. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Just help me out right off the bat. So there's a wide range, you know, uh, the majority of the time you're going to have to have a conversation with them for a little bit. Maybe, maybe they last a day or two being real stubborn. Um, but within a, within a, a couple of days, you, you're usually, you, you kind of figure out what you're going to get. Out now of. let's, let's say Richard and I come, come work for you. What's like the first one or two easiest kind of tips or tricks you could give on, you know, interrogation, if you will. And, and, in applying to more of the business sense of like just discovery and learning and getting somebody to, to open up and give us more information that then is just like surface level. How would you go about, how would you go about teaching that to us? Well, first don't focus on what you can sell or provide to a potential lead or a client focus on what they need from you or what you can help them with. Right. So you're initially kind of qualifying their, um, their overall attitude towards your, your business or your product. Um, if I call a lab, right. And I'm trying to see if I can sell them a hundred thousand pounds of biomass. Um, first things first, I'm going to find out how are your sales already for your products that you're already making. Maybe you guys are making tons of CBD oil, but you're not having a lot of success with sales. And I know a bunch of guys that are buying CBD oil that I can connect you with. And that will increase your sales. And then in turn, you'll have more availability to buy up my biomass. And it's kind of a quid pro quo, you know? So you figure out how you can help them without selling them something first. You usually build some rapport in doing that. You know, maybe it's talking about, I connect with a lot of veterans in this industry, for example, you know, mm -hmm. it's really nice to meet other guys that yeah. work in the hemp and, and cannabis industry that were in the service of any, of any branch. Yeah. Instant rapport. We're like, cool. When were you in? Where did you go? You know, what did you do? And we're immediately just talking about stuff that's not sales related at all, but it builds that, that level of rapport. And then we're talking, and then you get to business a little bit later. That was just like me in college. Oh, what sorority are you in? Okay. What dorm do you live in? Right. Oh, I live in <laughs> you know, like it's the same thing. Right? So. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, a lot of guys, they get kind of put off when you're immediately like, you know, here's my product and this is the price and yeah. how much do oh, yeah. you need? What, what's been the biggest surprise? Like when you made, I mean, look, you, you made a, a big shift from, you know, military and, and a very specific niche part of the military. What's been the biggest surprise from those skills you developed there to what you're doing now, right? Whether it's a sales skill or a strategy or tactic or just, you know, how the institutions are similar, even though they're not, you know, they're, you know, on paper, they're completely not like, you know, what, what's some of the biggest surprises that you're like, Oh, wow, this is just like what I did over there. Um, having basically, uh, building a network, right. So when I was over, uh, overseas, there was a lot more to what I did other than interrogation. There's a lot that kind of goes under the umbrella of what my job was. Um, but being a, having the the knowledge and the skills and background of building a network of of individuals that each bring something different to the table, that was something I had to do in the military, and that is extremely important in this industry because I cannot tell you it's almost daily 
that someone comes to me because they know that I know so many people. I talk, I, I told you initially, I spent months just going from state to state and calling every single yeah. hemp business in that state. So I have this huge spreadsheet of over a thousand businesses and labs and farms and everything across the country and even international. Why, Jacob, why are we in spreadsheets? Why are we not using CRMs and why is the industry you're in not using any kind of modern selling technology? Well, for me personally, I think it's just a personal choice on my end. Cause I, you know, in the army, I was doing everything. I was doing immensely complex projects, but on like PowerPoint and spreadsheets. Oh, know, I, because, I get it. This is how Richard you know, and I, this is how Richard so, and I did everything for a long time. Yeah. Well, but you know, I think, you know, I'm probably, I probably just kind of bring a primitive, you know, if to you, if that's the appropriate word, kind of a primitive uh, practice to it. I'm sure that a lot of my peers are using very, very high tech CRM technology to manage everything. But for me, um, I take extensive notes. I love writing notes that comes from my background in interrogation and interviewing and doing investigations. I had to write a lot of handwritten notes and I keep, I keep files of all my notes, but in my digital files is where I keep all of my client notes. You know, what did we last talk about? When was the last time we talked? What's their main thing that they buy? Whatever, all the notes that I keep. And it just, for me, in my brain, it's easier to kind of just keep everything. I have a yes. spreadsheet broken up by state. I'm so smiling. I'm, I think you're right, I'm, though. I'm, Scott, I'm, smiling at all the, I'm smiling at all the B2B uh, software sellers who are listening to this podcast thinking, oh, I'm going to cold call the shit out of Jacob. Oh, yeah. Right, exactly. I know. It. I know. It. I'm going to get a ton of it after this. <laughs> but but it's, I just like the yeah. fact that you called Scott primitive. I like that part. So I, I don't think, think, myself I primitive. I I don't think it would bother him, though. <laughs> Uh, I think it's an, it's an old school take on it, maybe, but but maybe not, you know, maybe people are overlooking that interpersonal aspect of sales nowadays, instead of it just being a, a digital blip on your CRM, like these are people that I text and we call, we talk every day, yeah. the guys that I do business with, we have a, a very direct relationship. And it's so much more than a phone number on a spreadsheet. It's, you know, it's how's your, how's your family? It's how's, yeah. how's the kids, you know, but from a that bit, trip you took last weekend. Counterpoint, and then I'll let you off the hook. But from a business, no, but from a, a business standpoint, your business in sales has a bus number of one. Meaning if you get hit by the bus and disappear, all that information that's locked in your head goes away. And it doesn't, it doesn't, well, really, it doesn't really, really live anywhere else that is easy, uh, easily transferred over to, to somebody else. And I true. wonder you know, if you injected some, if you kept your personalized approach, but injected some modern selling and technology into this particular industry, I wonder if it's like dumping gasoline on your business in a good way, yeah. right? I wonder if it accelerates your, your growth. And, uh, you know, just some, it's just, it's just interesting to, to think about. Richard and I have spent some time this year, the early part of the year, talking to people in the uh, professional sports uh, professional sports leagues from all across the country, um, different sports and everything. And it's like very similar. Like they operate, you know, like it was the nineties still a little bit, you know? Right. Um, so now I'm thinking to myself, Richard, holy cow, what about the, uh, what about the hemp industry here? Like maybe there's, maybe there's opportunity there. Right. You need, you need Scott to come in and be your lobbyist in Texas. <laughs> That's right. He's in. That's right. So. Plus, I don't know. Oh, if, I don't know if Texas is the right place to be growing that. So, actually, Richard, 2020, 2020 was the first year uh, Texas legalized hemp cultivation. So, 2020 was a big year for Texas and hemp. There you go, Richard. See, get off my back, dude. Get you off. You didn't even know that. You didn't even know. <laughs> I remember yeah. now that he said that. I remember. 
Yeah. A lot of hemp was grown there this last year. I talked to a lot of Texas hemp farmers and they did pretty well. They did all right for the first year. Watch out, West Texas, baby. There's nothing else out there. They're ready. They're ready. <laughs> That's hey, right. Uh, you get we got land to grow on. <laughs> we got to we got to start kind of trying to wrap up here. Um, I want to give a shameless plug and a shout out to our one of our sponsors, Gong, who uh, not only do they just have a cool Super Bowl commercial that that aired, which was really good to see. Um, you know, tech and sales represented in the uh, in the Super Bowl. But uh, they were just rated the number one best software product on G2, not just in sales tech, but across all software products, which is just absolutely insane with like over 2,000 five-star reviews from salespeople. So um, everybody check out Gong. Uh, also want to shout out Salesforce Revenue Cloud, Vidyard, and Lead411 for all their work that they do to help support the Surf and Sales podcast. Jacob, we always end the show saying, how can we be helpful to you? Is there any questions you have for us? Uh, any, anything you need advice on? Or is there you know, a cause you're uh, supporting behind the scenes that you want to kind of amplify a little bit? So this is, this is your moment. Yeah, for sure. I'll first uh, take a stab at that uh, you know, shout out for projects I'm working on. Um, as a veteran and as a veteran working in the hemp industry, I'm always adamant about encouraging other veterans to... Uh, take a look at alternative medicine sources like getting off of opiates and prescription painkillers that the VA is uh, really quick to prescribe to us for any different range of ailments and try giving full spectrum hemp extracts a try, you know, try CBD oil or hemp oil. Um, if you live in a state where medicinal and recreational cannabis is available and you want to go down that route and see if it might help, I can attest that I am, I know many, 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 many combat veterans who have gotten off of a dozen different prescriptions by using hemp or cannabis products and, and supplementing those or replacing them completely. I'm always adamant about if anyone wants to reach out to me and talk more about that, if there are any veterans that, you know, need more information, please, please, please don't hesitate. Um, you can always, you know, ask those questions, get informed and uh, get yourself. Where can they, where can they get you, way. Jacob? Where can they, where can they? Um, you can first, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn, right? So Jacob McCandless on LinkedIn, you'll see him on there. Um, my email also is jacob.7peaksdistribution at, at Gmail with uh, the digit seven instead of spelled out, but the rest of it is spelled out. So that's jacob.7peaksdistribution at Gmail. You can always shoot me an email. Um, I'd love to hear from anyone, uh, any veterans that want more information or would love to get a little bit of education about cannabinoids and things like that. I'm more than willing to, to help out. Um, one thing I think you guys could, I think, and Richard, I think you recently did this as well. I saw you just released an ebook, right? I did. Yeah, I did. I would love to hear your feedback on that. I've been working on some writing myself and I would love to know your, your thoughts on the process of self-publishing and ebook publishing. Uh, Scott will be better at it than me. Um, cause he's already written one real book and one ebook. Um, but uh, it's a painful fucking process for me. It's painful. Mm -hmm. um, but, and again, I'm not strategic about it where I think it'd be interesting for you because you know, you, you've been educated in how to be strategic, right? Like that's, I think that's a huge piece of the, sure. the military background is that I'm just like, let's throw this against the wall and see what happens. Right. right let's right. just stick it out there. Right. And, um, we'll see what happens. You know, I'll probably, as I do another one, I'll probably get a little more strategic about it, but Scott might have a better answer for you than I do. I'm sure he does actually. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I released a, a paperback book and audio book and uh, an ebook all for my first 
my first release. And then I released an ebook alone as a standalone um, in January. And I have a third book coming out in a couple months that will be um, digital as well as paperback. Um, it is an absolute labor of love or labor, oh, yeah. or labor of pain. Uh, <laughs> you're not going to get rich on it, right? I mean, realistically, like you're not, you're not doing it for the money necessarily, at least the direct money, like, like book royalty money. Uh, there is opportunity to, you know, use it as like a business card, calling card, if you will. Um, sure. So people say, oh, it's Jacob. He's the guy who wrote about that thing. Right. Um, and then maybe that lands you, you know, I don't know, speaking gigs or, or, or jobs or consulting opportunities or, or what have you. Right. And it's, it's just, about the brand. It yeah, that's right. the whole yeah, brand. As a way to amplify your brand. That's right. Um, but, yeah, that's essentially what it is. You're branding yourself. You become your own kind yeah. of business at that point. Yeah. And you know, depending on how much time and effort and energy you can devote to it, you know, you're looking at a few months to a couple of years, yeah. <laughs> you know, depending on the length and the subject matter. Um, but, you know, it's, you can you get some scratch off of it. I mean, I, you know, I, I make a few hundred dollars every single month off book royalty still from 2017. And, uh, you know, a little bit more than that, although the second book is brand new, so it's kind of to be expected. Um, but, you know, you're, like I said, you're not getting rich off of it, but that's paying, sure. paying a couple bills. Exactly. You know? yeah. That's kind of how yeah, I look at it. So. But it also got you, it also gets you other gigs. Right? Yeah. That's, it supports. It's, right. it's the calling know. card and the branding kind yeah. of play. Yeah. So. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Cool, man. What, what, what made you ask the question just like you're asking aside from you? What kind of book are you thinking about writing? Well, I've actually got a, my first kind of rough draft on my first one is already pretty much complete. I'm, I'm really my worst self-critic. I, I've, everything I write, I double, you know, I think over and I'm like, oh, that sounds like crap. And I rewrite it, you know, and I do that like a thousand times. So it takes me forever to finish projects, but I've got one done already. I've been working on for about a year and a half. And that is a, uh, a simplified, counter surveillance training manual so it's basically like without using too much military terms in in the most simplest form possible it just teaches you how to tell if you're being followed like yeah there was a lot of news story what motivated me there's a lot of news stories back to back to back uh at one point about like young women being abducted and horrible things happen to them and it's like i have a daughter you know and one day she's gonna have to go out on her own go to college there's millions of other americans in the same boat as me you should be able to know how to use those skills to tell if someone is doing something nefarious, following you home, following you home from the bar, you know, stalking you on the street, whatever. There's simple things that we get trained to do in law enforcement and the military that are not classified, that are just common sense skills that people deserve to know. So I wrote a book kind of breaking it down into basic skills, what to do if you're walking or if you're driving your vehicle. That's um, great. Ooh, I'd read yeah. it in a heartbeat. I'm all over no, it. I'll email you. The, I'll email you guys the draft for sure. You can take a look at it and let me know what you think. Um, yeah. happy, the happy, other happy, happy to yeah. yeah. The other thing was I'd like to write a uh, kind of like interviewing, interviewing skills from an interrogator's perspective. Totally. That's the book I was thinking you were writing. That's what I would. Absolutely. That's the next one. Yeah. That's yeah. the good one. And it, yeah. It just kind of uh, giving that spin of like, you know, how to have a conversation without when you, th when you say I'm going to go have an interview, everyone thinks of it as like, a, I'm trying to, it's a one-way communication street. It's like and so the person doing the interviewing is looking for what can you bring to me? But if as a sales professional, when you go into an interview, it's a mutual, it's two-way 
you know, it's what can I do for you? What can you do for me? Building rapport, interpersonal skills, all of those things come together and just kind of putting that in a simple to read format, I think would help a lot of guys. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That's really good. Well, thanks so much for uh, helping us out and spending some time with us, Jacob. This was a lot of fun, man. It's good to learn about, uh, you know, a different area and arena of, of sales than, uh, than we talk about every single day. So thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Again. Thank you guys very much. I had a blast. It was a great conversation. I look forward to talking to you guys more in the future. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jacob. We appreciate it.